0: This podcast is brought to you by Cyberattacks Can Be Prevented. Checkpoint, you deserve the best security. We are back from our Pesach or Passover break and no surprises, lots has happened. We'll get into it all. It's unholy. I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London.
1: And I'm Yunit Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. 101, Jonathan, which is the number of our episode. And if it was a basic course in Anaholi, I would say that usually I'm the one in Tel Aviv updating you and diaspora, what's going on here in Israel and vice versa. But now the world's turned upside down because you spent a few days in Tel Aviv and you can update us on what was going on here.
0: It's quite true. With our usual um, uh, synchronicity and, and synergy, I managed to be in the country when you weren't. So that was uh, not <laughs> what we wanted. But it's That's quite because true. our
1: secret contract stipulates that we can't be in the same country at the same time.
0: We can't be seen in the same <laughs> place at the same time. Um, but no, it is quite true that a, a long delayed trip to Israel, a pandemic delayed trip indeed for Pesach, I I managed to make and so was in Tel Aviv for Pesach. And of course, observed the tradition of the diaspora Jew visiting Israel for Pesach, which means visiting aunts, uncles, cousins, friends, a beloved niece, and then of course being struck by terrible guilt at all the people. And if you're one of them and you're listening, that we just ran out of time in our sort of headless chicken dash from place to place to place. Uh, I apologize. That kind of trip where when you get back, you think, right, now I need a holiday. <laughs> um, because that's exactly what happened. But it was, it was great to be there after what had been a very long, uh, gap, you know, Pesach wise. It's been a long time since I'd spent Pesach in Israel and it was good to be there. And of course, the timing was, you know, from the point of view of everything we talk about on here. It was apposite timing because lots going on and it meant I was able to make an appearance at and see and attend and witness one of the protests. I think it was week 14 of the those Saturday night protests and to see them up close you know it was uh, it was fascinating to see it
1: interesting because you've been asking me a lot about who the people were in these protests. You asked for a while if they're the Philharmonic crowd, meaning if I can translate you like the Ashkenazi, older, left-leaning Israelis from Tel Aviv. And I wonder when you were in the protest, what was your sort of thinking on, on on what you saw around you?
0: Well, the funny thing is, just I think a day or two before I went, the Philharmonic itself put out a video or something (laughs) of them performing a piece of music linked to these protests. So uh, that felt to be right sort of in tune. And walking around, look, very obviously, there are people who absolutely fit that profile of old Israel, older, actually just in terms of age, and also Ashkenazi, and also clearly secular, etc. Plenty of people who fit that profile, but not entirely. And I know that, you know, around the country, you know, there are religious people who are there in Jerusalem, people from all kinds of backgrounds, Mizrahi, Ethiopian, etc. That was very much the secondary observation, the primary observation, I have to say, I found tremendously heartening. Because, of course, listeners will know that the day before Mm -hmm. that Saturday in the middle of Pesach, there had been not one but two terror attacks. There was the car that rammed onto people, on pedestrians, on the Tayelet, on the promenade at the sort of Jaffa end mm-hmm. in Tel Aviv, killing one man, a, a visitor from Italy, and injuring several others. And then an incident in the West Bank, a family from Efrat, a British Israeli family, actually, the D family, a mother and her two daughters, killed. And the result was, you know, obviously, tremendous nervousness in the air. And just the people I know were sending messages saying, you know, we're talking and we've got a friend of a friend has a brother who's in intelligence, and he says you should stay away. And there's rumors, all that stuff that is so familiar. Big crowds are going to be vulnerable. And lots of people, they were saying they were going to stay away. I thought, you know, I want to see what this is. And I went anyway, and was very heartened to see that, you know, again, estimates were of 150,000 people coming out on the streets. And I just thought, you know, for people in Britain or America or Australia or wherever, if they try and put themselves in the shoes of a population where there have been two terror incidents in the preceding 24 hours, would they go to be part of a mass crowd for anything? And I think most people, if they were honest, would say, no, they wouldn't. Everyone would stay behind closed doors. And yet Israelis thought that the fight for their democracy is important enough that they are going to put aside what would be a very natural human fear and stand up to be counted for their democracy. And so I found the whole thing extremely moving. You know, there was a performance of Hatikva. obviously the co-option of the flag we've talked about. Mm -hmm. But mainly that thought that just went through my mind was, yes, democracy was... You know, taken away in Hungary, in Turkey, under attack in Poland. And I'm not sure there were this level of, um, defiance in those countries, but what, wh- you know, where there was or wasn't in Israel for now 15 weeks, I think it's been Israelis have come onto the streets to say they're not gonna, you know, they will not go quietly. And they are going to fight for their democracy. I found that very, very inspiring.
1: You know, from my uh, side of the conversation, I was in an undisclosed location in Europe while you were in Tel Aviv, and I was being mm. like a Jewish mother because a day, even a day before the terror attacks that you mentioned, there were rockets over the northern part of Israel, and I had to sort of write you and say, "Listen." be the Ford prefect to your Arthur Dent and write, don't panic, there might be sirens in Tel Aviv, there might be rockets in Tel Aviv, just, by the way, you were not panicking at all, but I had to kind of say, and then the day after, as you mentioned, two terror attacks in the morning and the evening, I was looking at my phone, wondering if to write you or not, I didn't even know what to write besides saying, welcome to Israel, like, I didn't write that, obviously, but I felt like this is the Israeli experience. When it gets rough, it it can get very rough, I'm sorry, this isn't a great advertisement for the country or advertisements, as you would say. I know, but that's what it feels like when things get, you know, rough. I know that you enjoyed a holiday in any case, but that was like such a weird upside down situation, which I was on the outside looking in, kind of concerned for you and the family, see that, that everything is okay, And you were actually the one being in Tel Aviv and experiencing all of this like from the ground. So that was that was a very interesting and unique situation for us, I think.
0: It was, I was tempted to send you a message saying, you need, this is the reality we live with. It's a tough neighborhood. You don't understand from the Europe sitting there in the flesh pots, you know. Um, but I didn't do that. But yeah, it is quite true that if somebody checked through our text, they would see advice about stairwells and, uh, and, you know, the right safety drill, you know, what's amazing about it. And of course, I know that you are so used to this, but I'd even forgotten that point about the day before was those uh, incoming missiles from Lebanon. Mm -hmm. The next thing knocks out the thing before. And so, you know, the missiles falling down on a Thursday are replaced in your mind immediately by the attacks on the Friday. And by Saturday, as I said, people have somehow, it's obviously some kind of mental trick. It's a Mm -hmm. coping mechanism where you put that out of your mind too. Because, of course, a crowd of 150,000 people cannot be protected. If somebody wanted to do harm, they would be able to, Um, and there were just people exposed. And yet people went out anyway. It was a a glimpse into the kind of reality you and I have been discussing on here for 100 episodes, and this being, as you say, 101 are in like a crash course in unholy <laughs> studies
1: completely um,
0: well i certainly got that and so yeah it was a, it was good to be there um next time we'll have to coordinate a tiny Maybe, bit better. just a bit um, just a bit, <laughs> just a bit. Um, but yeah um uh, you know lot, lots happened in in the space of 24 36 hours but lots been happening over the whole of the two weeks mm-hmm. since we were last talking afresh so just i mean why don't you in a uh, classic unholy style place, bang <laughs> up today
1: recap last final episodes in unholy um we, we should go back but just bef- maybe before we do that i would look forward we're talking now it's a thursday next week is uh, memorial day for fallen uh souls In Israel, we are really in what is, we're between the sort of, I would say, the most sacred days on the Israeli calendar between Yom HaShoah and uh, Yom Hazikaron. There's a common saying here, Jonathan, I I wonder if you've heard it, that Yom Hazikaron Memorial Day uh, shows us the price we pay for having a country in Yom HaShoah. Uh, Holocaust Memorial Day shows us the price we pay for not having had one. But really, these are the a uh, very sort of you know somber days in Israel. In any case, and of course, Memorial Day, Israel's uh, military cemeteries are are packed with families and 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 bereaved families. Usually, you know, representatives of the government come to every military cemetery in the country, and the country is full of them. Sadly, uh, but we are in a very uh, in a unique year in Israel, that is very clear. The country is torn apart because of this judicial overhaul and the protests. And in the shadow of this process, which is really tearing the country apart, bereaved families have been asking—I would even say pleading—with um, ministers not to come to the uh, military cemeteries on Memorial Day. Some of the families actually deciding to have their own silent protest and not to come themselves to these ceremonies because of how controversial this this government is. We should mention the most controversial of ministers in this government is, of course, Itamar Ben-Gvir, the far-right leader of Utsma Yehudit. Uh, he's supposed to be talking in Be'er Sheva. Families, again, begging him not to come. This is someone who did not serve in the military. They don't want to see him there. They asked him not to come. These days, the Memorial Day and then Yom Atzmaut Independence Day can look a lot uh, different from what we've seen in, in recent years.
0: I mean, the, the clustering of these days has always been so striking to me. Um People perhaps don't realize, I mean, you're sure the idea of the country coming to a standstill that moment when the sirens blast, mm-hmm. cars stop on the freeway, motorway, they, people stand by their cars and etc. The country coming to a standstill to remember an event that didn't happen in that country.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, I can't think of any country in the world that does that, where it stops to remember something that happened not, you know, in that geographical space or to that Country, as it were, but to the wider Jewish people, and then a week later, you're into this bipolar forty-eight mm-hmm. hours that you've described, where Yom Zick are on the Memorial Day, then just segues immediately. The moment sundown comes on Memorial Day, the bunting and the streamers and the banners come out for a party for yep. for Independence Day. That kind of mood swing uh, it can give you whiplash, you know, where you go from one to the other. All of that is already extraordinary and sort of peculiarly Israeli. But what you've just said adds a whole other layer onto it. Because even though Israel has had controversial governments before, obviously, prime ministers or defense ministers that some in the country don't like, I don't think, you'll tell me if I'm wrong, I don't think there's ever been the kind of reluctance or disquiet that you're describing there where families of the bereaved, or rather bereaved families, don't want to be... Uh, at a ceremony addressed by this or that politician, I don't know. Tell me if I'm wrong, but I didn't. That's happened before. That feels to me a new mark of 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 how much an outlier this current government mm-hmm. really is.
1: We did we did talk last year of one incident. Naftali Bennett again his government not completely in consensus either. He was, I remind you, uh, for the first time a government was formed with an Arab party. He came to a memorial service and was uh, heckled particularly by a Netanyahu supporter, but also some bereaved families were very upset at the government that he had formed. He stood there for five minutes and 30 seconds listening to to what they had to say. So we had an incident like this, but I think what we might see this year is different in scope and different in in how many incidents can happen. Maybe it will pass without an incident But even the fact that there are families that are saying they're not going to come on Memorial Day to the cemetery, just imagine how painful that is uh, for a family to to make that decision because they don't want to encounter a minister of this government. We should also uh, make note of the fact that many of this government's members did not serve in the military. That is also very important in the story that Israel tells itself uh, uh, on Memorial Day.
0: I just thought of one very basic thing we should say, which will be known to almost all our listeners, but um, but perhaps not to every one of them. And that is, all of this is different, acquires a different character, because Israel has a conscript army. Everybody does military service of you know one kind or other. Every family sends off its 18-year-old boy or girl. And therefore, this is not like A veterans day or an, uh, you know, uh, armistice day or, or, or or other comparable events in, in other countries in, you know, this country or the United States or elsewhere, where there are only, when you talk about military families, you're only talking about one segment of the population. When you talk about military families in Israel, you mean every family Mm -hmm. and every family, left wing, right wing. But, you know, this is something that with the exception of the ultra orthodox, everybody's involved in. So these national Mm -hmm. ceremonies, are truly national in a way that, for example, if somebody British is listening to this and thinks of Remembrance Sunday in November, you know, a lot of the country are spectators for that, yeah. watching the military community remember its fallen. You're not a spectator in Israel in, in that not occasion, enough. and I and I have, you know, I have been in the country for a, a Memorial Day. I remember that the Defence Minister at the time was one Yitzhak Rabin who had a very you know intense relationship with those families would write those personal letters as prime minister to each family of a fallen soldier the the emotions that are going on here are, are just of a different order when you have a conscript army
1: of course and remember that the fact that Israel has a channel that is dedicated to the names of the fallen soldiers and that runs for 24 hours so you can go to bed and wake up and still see the names of the soldiers that gave their lives for uh, this country. It really is a, a, a unique day and a special day and a very sad day in, in Israeli society. I don't know how it would play itself out this, this year. It's, it's a very complicated question. Um, we left, as you said, our listeners with some questions about where the legislation is going and where the Netanyahu government is going. Maybe we should try to pretend like we're answering the questions, if you like.
0: Do. I think we need to know where we're at, because we left on something of a cliffhanger before.
1: We like to do that. So, okay, Knesset is in recess uh, back in May. Disastrous polls for Netanyahu uh, that we will uh, discuss in a minute. Uh, Moody's credit rating agency downgrading Israel's forecast from positive to stable, saying this, the manner in which the government has attempted to implement a wide-ranging reform without seeking broad consensus, points to a weakening of institutional strength and policy predictability. That is from their eight-page report. Now, you know my mind, Jonathan. I've I've said, I think, even before Netanyahu attempted to fire Defense Minister Gallant and what erupted in in a huge protest in Israel, I thought that the legislation won't pass as it was written, the combination of economic pressure and international pressure, and of course, the reservists in the military saying they won't show up, they won't show up for duty. if, If this passes, I think it was too much. Now, If, you know, the the Night of the Gallant uh, story, which happened March 26th, two things were Pretty, or looked like they were pretty clear. One is that Netanyahu would have to pull back the, resi- the the firing of Gallant. And the second thing is that the Netanyahu government looks like it was the beginning of the end of that government. Now, first of all, the, the firmer happened, right? Netanyahu had to pull back the decision to fire uh, Gallant. The latter looks less clear. As I told you, the polls are disastrous for Netanyahu. If the elections were held today, then the next pri- prime minister of Israel uh, would be Benny Gantz. Remember how Al Al Gore used to say I used to be the next president of the United States? Something like that. But I think that these polls also do something else. They sort of toughen the glue that holds this coalition together. Because all the people are looking at these polls, right? Parts of the coalition, even if they were threatening to leave, like Itamar ben they realize that the next thing that happens is that they are in opposition. So it does keep the coalition together. Also, we should add Netanyahu himself already saying things like, we went too far with the override clause. I don't think we should have an unlimited override clause, which means with a, a majority of 61. So you realize already that he is, that they are walking this back, and that he f- if it was only up to him, I'm not sure it's only up to him, but this legislation won't pass as the Knesset returns in May.
0: Yeah, I think if you were uh, applying all, all the usual uh, rational standards of uh, the political playbook, you would say this is dead in the water, one look at the, the combination of the politics, you know, this is a vote loser, you know, in the biggest way. I mean, I saw those polls, they were coming out while I was there. You know, the the, the anemic numbers for Likud and the the strong numbers for, yes, Benny Gantz, but in in combination with Yair Lipid, it means the anti-BB bloc is right back in there with a really healthy majority if the polls were to pan out. The combination of that and the financial economic pressure, the, the Moody's credit rating, I mean, other countries... May not realize how significant that is, but for an economy like Israel's, the approval of the international markets really matters. I mean, and it's been the high tech nation, startup nation. If that is the foundations of that are shaken, you would think any normal politics, you know, the political system would run a mile from this whole setup and say, right, this has been a failure. L- let's bail out. I'm thinking in a way of like the Liz Truss budget, you know, in this country, in Britain. In, you know, budget which tanks the markets, the markets hate it, the polls hate it. it, you know, it's dropped and she's dropped. That would be what would happen normally. But in this case, I just wonder if there, if this is not quite normal because of the way Netanyahu and this government has behaved so far. There have been the signs already there for many, many weeks that they should drop this, and yet they didn't. And I'm thinking of that night when he did announce the firing. Mm-hmm. of Defense Minister Gallant. You know, that was the moment to step back. Instead, he doubled down. And therefore, it does sometimes happen in beleaguered political administrations where an us against the world mentality de- grips. And in the kind of Likud and an and ultranationalist universe, it becomes a, a sort of siege mentality where you think, we will refuse to back down, and there's a price to pay for backing down—that you, you're deemed weak by your own supporters. Mm-hmm. So, you know, rationally, by any normal measure, of course, this should be dropped, and you drop like a you know stone very, very quickly. But I just caution that the usual rational calculus may not wholly apply in this case.
1: You're right about the fact that Israeli logic is different from normal logic. If it were up to only Netanyahu, I would say he would drop it and he would do it in a very Netanyahu style, which means I'm not going to declare I'm dropping it, I'm just going to let it fade away. But there are other groups who want this, right? Yariv Levine wants this because maybe he wants to signal that he is the heir to Netanyahu and he, he's an ideologue, he wants to weaken the Supreme Court. The ultra-Orthodox want to weaken the Supreme Court because they want to pass through legislation that exempts them officially from military service, also very connected to what we've been discussing here. So there are different forces here. If I would, you know, if you would ask me to give you my, my prediction, I would still say that I think that this legislation will at the end of the day not pass. But there are definitely forces that are going to continue to try and push it.
0: Well, I find that reassuring myself, because I think that it would be a disaster if it were to pass. We should mention the international front, um, which is also part of this, that too is presents pressure on him. I just mentioned one thing, which is a poll, which I thought was very striking, from Pew in the United States, measuring that 60% of Israelis have faith in Joe Biden's leadership. He would love numbers like that in the United States. Mm -hmm. That's, you know, Israelis having more confidence in him than Americans uh, do. But only, if you reverse the question, only 32% of Americans have faith In Netanyahu's leadership, these headlines about um, the protests and so on have reached beyond Israel and have dented his standing, even in a place where before he would have um, enjoyed a degree of support and approval. So, that too is part of the pressure here that, you know, he knows, we know that the United States, Washington is not happy with the course the government has taken. That is another reason. For him personally, and I take on board completely what you said about the others in the coalition, but um, mm-hmm. that's another pressure on him personally to move away from this as quickly as he can, if he can.
1: Yeah. Interesting. The, the title of that article, by the way, was that one in four Americans have not heard of Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Does that mean three out of four Americans have heard of him? That's quite striking, don't you think?
0: Just yeah, you mean to say those are high numbers? <laughs>
1: I think that I know can,
0: for a foreign he, leader to be, he I agree. Read that, he yeah. can
1: read into that, at least you know, think that that's a good thing for him. Yeah, um, so I'm, they
0: may hate me, but they know who I am. <laughs> exactly. Uh,
1: yeah, yeah, that's the goodness. better than being anonymous, right? Um, well, we, we we should also talk about the fact that we you know we were talking about this. That Israel is approaching its its seventy fifth Independence Day, and it's doing it with some trepidation, uh, or at least the part of Israel that is in the center, the center-left. And it is doing it, we should add, as Israel is losing, or has lost, rather, um, two of its um, cultural scions, both uh, coincidentally born again uh, around the establishment of the state. I'm, of course, referring to author Meir Shalev, who passed away two weeks ago, and to Jonathan Giffen, uh, Israel's songwriter, more than anything, playwright, author, who died, uh, yesterday. One of them, Jonathan Geffen, was born a year before Israel was established. Meir Shalev was born a year after. This is obviously, a, a, both of them, a great loss for for the state of Israel.
0: And something very poignant about two figures born uh, in or around the founding of the state, dying just days before the state marks its 75th anniversary, you know, as if not able to reach that milestone, but reminding the country of the country it was at the time of its birth. I mean, both of them, in a way, from that kind of Philharmonic Israel that I was talking about before. Yeah. I mean, even, I think, from the same place, mm-hmm. um, the Moshav Nahalal which is people will know uh, from that old song from the pre-state era. You know, there is that lyric, Mi Betalfa Ad Nahalal" from for the kibbutz, to Nahalal. It is one of those sort of definitive you know, mythic sort of places. But of these like two, the is must... like
1: the Israeli Plymouth Rock, really. <laughs> I mean, if you have right. to give the, the, the Yeah, comparison. no, that's perfect.
0: I, I, I mean, I have to say, these are not two Israelis who had a huge profile outside culturally, I would say. Look, there are some, you know, writers, you think of the late Amal Oz, or you think of Nomi Shema, you know, who songwriter, who built up a, a profile internationally, particularly in the Jewish diaspora, I would say that's not true of either of these two writers. So for people who are or artists, just give us a flavor of their sort of, of their work really for people who are hearing these names perhaps for the first time.
1: Well, first of all, I mean, Yonatan Geffen, who died yesterday, I mean, if you're an Israeli uh, going through kindergarten, elementary school, high school, military service, you are saturated in Yonatan Geffen's songs. You know, they echo, they reverberate in your brain. Uh, Definitely the definitive children's album called A Keves I would urge people, even if they don't speak a word of Hebrew, to listen to it. It's beautiful, Uh, The 16th Lamb in English. Um, You know what? Let's listen to one of their songs. Let's do that. That is, uh, See, uh, I...
0: now that one yes. may be the exception because I think that perhaps is known outside because any... Uh, parents who sent their child or any children who were in a Jewish kindergarten. That may well have been the, a song that they would have been taught in kind of basic Hebrew classes. So I think that one did travel and, uh, you know, yeah, I mean, the, um, the it's part of the canon.
1: Yeah, it's part of the canon in every stage. Of of Israel's uh, you know existence. I mean, it's not only for children; it's for high school students. And we talked about so much about memorial services. We can't not mention Hanasiha Ketan Miplugabet, the Little Prince from Squadron B, which is the definitive song for memorial services in Israel. This is all Jonathan Giffen's hundreds of songs, uh, and both I think Jonathan Geffen and uh, Meir Shalev had the ability. First of all, to be, you know, to love their country, but to be fierce critics of it, to be able to treat the Hebrew language in a way that is so, you know, they they knew that the language is malleable, they knew how to modernize it. Um, So many iconic sentences and lines from both of them are are sort of ingrained in the language and their ability, and I thought about this the other day, more than anything to write to all ages. And the fact that both wrote to children, Meir Shalev's children's books are you know, the loveliest that I've read in any language. And of course, uh, Jonathan Giffen, it's a different skill to write for children. You have you need a soul of a child to write for children. I remember Jonathan Geffen used to say I feel like I'm a child because I still have so many questions and I don't have any answers. So that is the, the gift of these two men. I think Meir Shalev would be more accessible for anyone uh, speaking English because his books were translated. It's obviously a little bit more difficult to translate popular songs of any kind of genre, and he wrote in so many genres, Jonathan Geffen. It's difficult to, to translate them. He is, of course, of Israeli royalty. He's of the Dayan family. His mother was uh, Moshe Dayan's uh, sister. He also, uh, his children are very important in the Israeli cultural world. Shira Giffen was a filmmaker and a screenwriter. Aviv Giffen was obviously a very famous singer. So this is just a very kind of tragic. And again, it's very random that we're losing them both now, but it's such a sort of symbol of where Israel is at this point, I think.
0: And, And you mentioned at the start that how Memorial Day is not going to be without or free of partisan politics, even a moment of national unity like that, there will be political controversy. What about with these two figures? Because both broadly identified with the left. I mean, Mayor Shalev, often a, a, you know, explicitly a critic. How have the politicians, given that we have a very right wing government, have they put aside politics in grieving these two as just national treasures? Or has there been something else, more, more of that kind of ambivalence and, and controversy in the public official mourning for these two.
1: So, first of all, uh, we should say that Meir Shalev had a column in Yedioth Chonot. He wrote until almost his final days. He was v- a fierce critic. This shouldn't surprise you of, of the Netanyahu government and of Netanyahu himself. It took Netanyahu about 24 hours to put out his condolences after Meir Shalev uh, died. And Yonatan Geffen, again, also a fierce critic of this government. I think he was once even attacked after saying, physically attacked after saying something against Netanyahu. It took Netanyahu, I don't think that till this moment, if I'm not mistaken, he didn't yet respond or say anything. But there were other right-wing ministers who did come out and say, you know, these are huge cultural icons. Like, let's put politics aside. We are mourning the fact that they're they they, have, they lost.
0: Well, I think um, it, is, it should sort of go without saying that these two are the obvious menches of the week uh, for us. And it's good to have a moment to reflect on their life as well as their death and their and the great work they leave behind, I think people will now be going online to find uh, those records and perhaps to find those, the books that are available in translation. Chutzpah, there are, there are many offerings from around the world, but once again, it is p- p- rare perhaps for have to Israelis sc- scooping the board in, in all our categories. But I think the we talked about it be, just before we uh, started recording this. There is a no contest for this week's (laughs) Chutzpah Award. Uh, Yonit, and it is in your neighborhood.
1: Uh, uh, Yeah, I mean, apologies for this. I'm taking, I feel like I'm taking over the show this week, but I'm just saying that, you know, when I first read this, I really thought it was fake. Like, it took me a few minutes to make sure that what I'm telling you now is actually a true story and not somebody making it up or it's a joke or, or something like this. Um, okay, so we're going back to uh, discuss for a minute, I want to return to Yom HaShoah and to discuss the situation of the Holocaust survivors uh, alive in Israel. The sad truth of it is that a third of them are in a under the poverty line. This, by the way, a travesty in itself, the fact that the state is not taking care of these people is terrible. But Ariyah Deri, who is the head of Shas, we talked about him when he was um, disqualified by the Supreme Court to stay in government as a minister, he put out this message that uh, Shas has this new bill and they want to take care of of Holocaust survivors. And then the bill itself, we should say, is that it gives Holocaust survivors, I'm sorry, this is the real story, 50% discount on the grave that they will have after they die. Now, I think it's basic stuff that if you want to help people help them while they're still alive, and time is not on our side in this issue. But really, being proud of the fact that your help for Holocaust survivors is that you are giving them a discount on their burial plot or their grave is just, I mean, it's beyond chutzpah. We should say that he tweeted it and then he erased it a few minutes later when he realized, you know, the public outcry against this. But, I mean, this is terrible chutzpah. I
0: have to say it's the 50% thing that (laughs) gets
1: Really, that's what got you? The 50%? Well,
0: because it's obviously so crass for all the reasons you've said. If he said, My help for Holocaust survivors is I'm going to give you a free burial plot, that would be sick anyway, right? But he's not. He's saying, I'm going to give you half of it's free, but I still want the other 50%. I mean, it's just, it's piling awful upon awful. It's that, you know, it's a version of the food is awful and such small portions. You know, it's a terrible gesture. And even then, it's stingy with the terribleness. Oh, let's agree, so it's a it's horrible just,
1: idea gone wrong, okay? I mean, that yeah, is what you can I mean, say about that. it's
0: just appalling, a discount. Uh, um, it, we're sorry, you know, dear a, listeners. Aren't you day, glad we're
1: back? I just wondered, maybe we should have brought a nicer story for Chutzpah. No, either. I mean,
0: it, it touches on something which others will have written about a bit, and maybe one day we'll get back into it. But the question of how Holocaust survivors fare mm-hmm. in Israel has been a point of controversy. Plenty of people say they are not treated well you know obviously in in our minds this week just a few days ago was Yom HaShoah people you know around the world lighting a candle either real or metaphorical for those people you know this is why arederi is a man from a religious party this is why a lot of people think uh, have you know a limited patience for those figures in politics really inept and you know at least there was the, he the the man involved had the shame sufficient shame to delete the tweet, you know we're in an era of shamelessness mm. and at least he was shamed into deleting that terrible mm. idea via Twitter. Um, so yes, a week of much chutzpah, but some menches, too lots of tragedy. We talked about the D family. We talked about the Italian tourist killed in. Uh, Tel Aviv, but also some points of real light in these last weeks with the people taking to the streets to fight for a better country. So no contest, I think, for this week's uh, Chutzpah Award winner. You can see why that was passed through the committee without a murmur of protest. Uh, We all do often have our little subcategory of the honourable mention. And I wanted to give that to, and I'm afraid I don't know the name, of whoever designed the t-shirt that is being worn, I think some of you may have seen this, for the 75th anniversary, in which graphically the figures 75 also look uncannily like the Hebrew letters that spell out the word lech, meaning go, which has become a kind of one-word slogan of the protest movement, go being addressed, I suspect, to the Prime Minister and perhaps the whole government. But a beautiful bit of ambiguous, Design where it simultaneously looks like a a, a, just a a routine, uncontroversial celebration of Israel at 75, but at the same time is also a kind of elegant middle finger to the powers that be. Uh, Whoever designed that rather brilliant t shirt, uh, honorable mention The graphic
1: designer Dudy Fischer, David Fischer, who did that. There we are. Yes, Um,
0: you get an honorable mention (laughs) on Unholy if. You have enjoyed this uh, Unholy episode 101. Uh, You can uh, spread the word by writing a review on any of the podcast platforms, rating us. Obviously, those five-star ratings really help other people get to the podcast. Do spread the word if you can.
1: And we will say our thank yous to Gaia Glazer, Omer Primat, um, Rom Atik, and Ya'ir Irbashan. Next week, we meet as usual. Jonathan, we're back to business completely.
0: See you then. This podcast is brought to you by Cyber Attacks Can Be Prevented. Checkpoint. You deserve the best security.